give us a little of a, of a taste of an idea of the environment in which one is cultivating, one is asking the questions. So these four vows, some of you might be familiar with them, some not. Sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. Compulsions are inexhaustible, I vow to dissolve them all. Dharma gates, Okay, so it looks like I have to start again. <laughs> so I'll just read the, the four vows again, the four great vows, which is what I want to talk about. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. Compulsions are inexhaustible. I vow to dissolve them all. Dharma gates are limitless. I vow to learn them all. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. So in a way, I want to look at it, what it means for us, these four great vows. How can these four great vows help us on the path, help us in our practice? And so the first one, I feel, is very much about compassion. It's very much about that cultivation of compassion. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. So again, it's kind of making us conscious that we are practicing, but we're actually practicing not just for ourselves, but we are practicing in a way to be in a different way, to be in a different relationship with the world. And so in a way, the first vow is kind of pointing out that sentient beings are numberless, that there are so many beings around us and we are also one of these beings. But we have to be a little careful with these vows, that we don't take them literally. I think we have to, in a way, take them more as poetic, as an aspiration, as an inspiration. So something which will make us aspire to something, which will give us energy, which will give us a direction, so that we're not starting you know, literally, we're going to try to save all beings, starting today. How many have I saved today? And then tomorrow. And then, you know, we kind of make a little list and a little total. Ooh, I have not saved many today. You know, I'm kind of getting behind all this. But to see, it is really an aspiration. Personally, I think an aspiration, and for me, a very much a recognition of life recognition of our life in this moment and recognition of others' life in this moment. And in a way, what I like about that as a vow is that sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. Actually, to me, is an indication that there are many different types of beings and that in a way there is this readiness within us to recognize all beings and to try to be there for all beings and not just the one we like. Because I think sometimes it's very easy to love the people we love, to love especially the one who loves us back in the proper way, and you know, then the one who does do not cause us too much trouble. Yeah, 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 then I can, you know, compassion, why not? Uh, yeah, yeah, I can save them, why not? But when we get, you know, the people who are a little difficult, a little problematic, well, you know, then I'm not so sure. You know, they're over there. <laughs> and in a way, I think that's what the, to save them all is saying, you know, can we consider each human being as, in a way, meriting our compassion, as being kind of present, we being present to their life. And in that being present in compassion to that life, no matter what that life is like, if we like it or not, if it gets on with us or not. And to me, this is important to see that when, of course, it is not easy sometimes to have compassion for difficult people, people who are grumpy, who are not grateful, etc., etc. But think about it. 
You might just spend 30 minutes on the phone with them once a week. They spend their whole time with themselves. You know, it's only half an hour. They have their whole life to live with themselves. So in a way to try to look at the conditions and to really see all being. Can I open my heart to all being? Also, another thing to me which, again, we can reflect on the phrasing, on the translation here is to save them all. And personally, I wonder if it would not be better to move it to, to serve them all. Because I think often we want to save people, but they don't want to be saved, you know. And we think we know the right way to save them, and they don't think the same at all. But I think it may be easier to be ready to serve all beings, to kind of be open to all beings, and in a way to see that if there is a being which is in difficulty, Actually, it allows the opportunity to have compassion, to open our heart to that being, so that in serving that being, actually we can have gratitude for that being being there, being alive, being able for us to connect with them and then connect with us. And also, in a way, to see that this, um, this vows is not passive, but it's very much creative, it's very much active. That in a way the vow is in a way to do something. The vow is to get into a relationship with somebody and to have some activity of some kind. And it's not like, oh yes, I have compassion for everybody, but they take care of themselves. And then, you know, I wish well for them. But not, it's really an active quality that we want to do something, we want to respond in a creative way. And I remember when I was in, uh, doing some research in Korea on women and Buddhism, and I met two nuns who were very interesting. And the first one was a nun people pointed out to me, and so I went to see her because she was doing, she had created with really very little uh, old people's home for women and for old nuns who did not have any disciple and temple. And I said, but why did you do that? And then she said, well, you know, I became a nun in order to, say, to awaken and to save everybody. I mean, this is uh, generally the idea. You know, you become a nun or a monk because you want to practice, awaken, and then save everybody. So... She started to do the training, and she did the study, and then she wanted to go and do some meditation. And so she did meditation like we do, asking, you know, what is this, what is this? And she did this for a few years, and then she thought, if I wait to do anything for them till I am awakened, they might have to wait for a long time. <laughs> Why not it be better to practice and to help them at the same time? And that's why she created that old people's home. And it was wonderful the way she had set it all up so that it was like a big family and it was like a wonderful place for this old lady. Another nun I met was interesting because she was a singer. She was a singer nun and I met her at a concert. She had set up this concert of classical music in a temple for lay people. And this generally is a bit of a no-no. I mean, in the precept, the nuns are not supposed to go to concert and they're not supposed to sing, the monks neither. And so I said, well, you know, how come you do this? And what was interesting was that very young, she was gifted. She had a beautiful voice. And her uh, preceptor, who was an old nun, although she was an old nun and a very conservative old nun, she said, oh, you have this gift. And in a way, you need to use this gift for other people, for their benefit, to serve them in a way. And so that's why, in a way, she uses that gift with music to kind of touch people and then bring them to the path. And when I asked her about the precept, she said, oh, you know, there is this great master, Master Chinol, and I'll talk about him tomorrow, uh, in two days, who says, you know, you need to know how to open and to close the precept. And she saw that music was a bit like chanting. 
you know, it kind of beat in the same way, and that she could kind of use the music to reach people in a spiritual way. And in that way, she was a DJ for a Buddhist uh, radio station. <laughs> she was also, she had an also um, a kind of a, uh, a program, a bit like in the old days, maybe some of you don't know it, but like Annika Rice. She would kind of, you know, people would tell her of people in difficulty, and then she would go and try to find a way to help them. So there was this little program where she would actually get people to help other people. And she was kind of more in between. So again, this serving them all, not just her doing it, but bringing people doing it. And another thing she did, she started, was like a telephone compassion helpline. And so in a way, within her of being a nun, she could still do many different creative things. And I think, to me, this vow, sentient being are numberless, I vow to save them all. It's kind of in a way looking in our life, in our circumstances. How can I creatively help others? How can I creatively be there for others? Then the next one is compulsions are inexhaustible. I vow to dissolve them all. And I remember when I was in Korea, there was this master was very fond of nuns, and he thought the nuns practiced better than the monks. So he used to go to give them lots of dharma talks. And I used to go to that nunnery where I used to go to. And once I visited him with a few nuns, and he suddenly turns to me and he said, you are dark, you are dark, very dark, aren't you? Well, I don't think so. But I mean, I did not say it. And it was interesting because, in a way, I think he was talking about that, you know. He was talking about this kind of like, what I would call, this blindness we have to our compulsion, to our, in a way, we have these habits, we have this reaction, we have this kind of self-interest, this automatic kind of habits. And I think often we have a certain blindness to it that we react very automatically and sometimes we don't see it. And I had this very interesting experience when I was in Korea. I was a nun, it was just at the beginning. I'd barely been a nun, I don't know, for maybe six months, kind of a, a, yeah, a few, one or two years, but not more. And I really did not know so much about Buddhism. I mean, a bit, but... And these uh, foreign guests come. So when there was foreign guests, I had to explain to them all about Buddhism, and they wanted to know about the Four Noble Truths, and I could never remember the Four Noble Truths, and kind of, you know, so I kind of start the first one, yeah, the Noble Truths of Suffering, yeah. <laughs> and then I see a monk taking my bucket full of persimmons, it's a fruit, which I had picked myself. <laughs> Very hard work. And he's taking it. My bucket. My persimmon. So I jump up. And I said, you can't take this persimmon. So he said, okay. So he goes off. And then I go back, oh yes. The second noble truth <laughs> of cra craving. <laughs> I was very pleased I remembered it. And then the third, the fourth. And then they went. And then my friend, the other nun, said, did you notice? I said, noticed what? <laughs> well, what you did with the persimmon. Did I? I had done it. It was totally automatic. They were my persimmon. I had to get them. And I had not been aware that I did this in that way. And to me, it really kind of, in a way, shows this compulsion. How we all intend, generally, to be wise, to be compassionate, to be kind, to be generous, to be skillful. And how often we're not. Because often we just go automatic. And I think, in a way, what this uh, vow is saying is that there is compulsion. There is automatism. There is habit. There is patterns. 
And in a way, can we look at them? Can we work with them? Can we, and to me, this is very much what the meditation is helping us. I know when you sit in meditation, there is this great hope that you're going to sit in meditation and then you are going to have this wonderful, peaceful, clear mind, and then you, know, you don't have to do much, but just sit there and kind of you know, bathe in the peacefulness and the clarity. Possibly you've not experienced this as you're sitting here. But very likely what you have experienced is actually habits. You have experienced your habitual thought of rumination, of planning, of fantasizing, of daydreaming, judging, etc., planning, etc. Or certain feelings we often have, or certain physical things we often have and reaction we have to that. And to me, I think it's very important that this is information. I think in a way, before we can do anything about compulsion, about habits, about automatism, we have to see them. And I think meditation is really give us, giving us the opportunity to see them. To see, ah, oh, that's the way I think. Ah, oh, this is what I'm telling myself now. Oh, I'm plotting revenge here. Not very compassionate, is it? So in a way, we can start to see this in a different way. Instead of being identified, this is me, this is the way I am, we start to see, oh, it has a reason. A thought has a reason, a feeling has a reason, a sensation has a reason, a story has a reason. And then this is where the question can be so useful. You're not saying the question to the thought, but because you cultivate this questioning, what is this? Then, then it helps you to look at the thought, the feeling, the sensation in a different way. And you start to see, oh, planning. Do I need to plan my retirement for the hundredth time now? Maybe not anymore. Maybe I can stop and just come back to the breath or just come back to the question. <coughs> Do I need to get lost in this feeling and in the story of the feeling? Or can I just experience the feeling as it arises in a more spacious way because also I am aware of the breath. Also I am bringing the question. So I think in a way, working with compulsion, first we have to see them. We have to be aware of them in a different way, in a spacious way where we start to less quickly identify, like me, my persimmon. You know, I mean, there were lots of persimmon on that tree. The monk could have had my persimmon. But it was interesting, because they were mine. I grasped onto them. And this was it. I was my persimmon in that moment. And if I did not have this persimmon, my life was finished. Mm -hmm. Instead of seeing, well, there are many more there. I can pick them up again. Or I can point it out to the monk in a different way, maybe in a kind, skillful way. So in a way, it's kind of looking. What, what happens? What do I do with this thing that appears, with things that kind of are so automatic? And then we kind of start to see how things work. I mean, to me, this is what was very interesting. Uh, for many years, I lived in a community. And a community is a fantastic opportunity to really see compulsion. Because as Westerners, we're not used to live with other people, although we think it's a good idea. And we think it must be such nice things to live together. I mean, if we're in silence, it's a little easier. And if we're in a schedule and there are teachers, it's easier. But if you live in a Western consensus community, this is very different. And to me, this was very interesting. Because I would wake up. I had been a nun for 10 years. And I, was, I had a role, I had a slot, and things were difficult at times, but I had a place. And now I was in this Western community. Everybody was equal. 
everybody has their opinion, and we, it was very interesting. And I would wake up, and I would say to Stephen, I am angry. Until that moment, I really did not think I was an angry person. But then really, living in community really made me see, I would wake up, I am angry. And I would say to Stephen, I am angry. And he would say, but what about? And I'd say, I have not the faintest idea. <laughs> so in a way, it was good to be in community because it helped me to see that. Because it kind of really kind of heightened the way one feels to live in community. And then being able to see it, bringing the practice to it, I could start to look at it in a different way. I could start to see, but yeah, I feel it. But there is no story around it. So then I was starting to be less identified with it. Also, I could start to see how painful it was. And I think in a way, often compulsion, I would say over time, will be dissolved by the meditation. Not just because I dissolve them. I don't think that works. But that it's over time we see how it works. And then when we really know them, and to me this was a breakthrough, when I really one day knew anger, the jitteriness of it, the agitation of it, then in that moment, I was able to let go because I saw the pain of it. And so in a way this is a knowing suffering and the letting go of the craving. So in a way to see this compulsion, the meditation helps us to see them helps us to see how they are, helps us to see how they make us feel, helps us to see the suffering that is caused, and also helps us to just let go in the seeing of the suffering. So in a way, to me, what is interesting also is to see how the grasping leads to the exaggeration, that often we grasp at something, and when we grasp, like I grasped at my persimmon, or if I had grasped at this feeling of anger, then I would exaggerate and I would proliferate. I mean, one thing I used to do, and you might have done something a little similar as you sit in meditation, is that the, when I first was married to my husband, Stephen, I mean, I'd been a nun for 10 years, and I kind of, uh, then we got married, and I was not so used to this, but then I was a little funny and fearful, etc., etc. And so one of the things I did when I sat in meditation, I would sit in meditation, watch the breath, what is this? And then would pop up, oh, what if Stephen dies? Oh, my life will be finished. And then I would think, what would I do if he died? And then I would have all kind of strategy and idea and plans, you know. And then I would become very sad. And then I would go to, oh, Stephen. <laughs> and he would say, what's the matter? You know, like an hour ago I was normal and now I was all boldly. And then I, I started to see I was doing that. That I was going to this weird, there was a little fear, a little anxiety. This went into the, the storyline and off I went. And I thought, this is strange. Why do I do this? Instead of enjoying him when he's alive, I'm thinking of his death. It's kind of like. And I thought, but this is strange to do this. Then, in a way, I use the question. I kind of, you know, the feeling of the questioning. And I thought, how can I deal with this? How can I deal with this, comp this compulsion and dissolve it? And then I saw it. What if I die? And as soon as I pose that question, what if I die, I could not care less. What if I die? If I die, I'm gone. No story, nothing. And it went. And after that, I stopped doing this. And I was with Stephen in the present and not in the fear of the future. So in a way, to start to see what do we do? How do we exaggerate? How do we proliferate? And to me, this is, in a way, the gift of meditation. That meditation brings us back to 
what is really going on now? Not the pain of the past, not the fear in the future, but what is really happening now? And how can I be with this? And so I think in a way, these vows, compassion are inexhaustible. I vow to dissolve them all. It's not a program of eradication of our bad habits. But it's more a kind of, a, again, a recognition of them, of seeing how they were, what are the conditions. And in a way, this kind of creative engagement, when they kind of actually, their power is dissolved. And then they can, in a way, we can be very differently with them. And then, there is a third one. Dharma gates are limitless. I vow to learn them all. And I think this is an interesting point. Because I think this is actually not often followed in any tradition, that it be the Zen tradition or other tradition. It's in Dharma gates, Dharma teachings, Dharma learnings, Dharma doors, are limitless. I vow to learn them all. So he's basically saying there are many different ways to practice the path. And in a way, I vow to learn them all. I vow, to me this is saying, I am open to different ways of learning about the Dharma, about the way I practice the Dharma. But generally, what do we do? In general, if we think, this is good for me, this is good for everybody, this is the right way to do it, this is the only way to do it. Everybody must do this. And I think this is what we have to be careful. That of course, whatever technique or whatever tradition is good for us because it's beneficial, it helps us to be more wise, more compassionate, more quiet, more clear. But I think it's very important that we are not stuck, that in a way we don't grasp at it and limit ourselves with it. Because in a way that's what we find. Uh, when I was in Korea, they did not think much of the Tibetan Buddhists. The Tibetan Buddhists don't think much of the Zen Buddhists, and the Japanese even don't think much of the Korean. And I mean, it was we were in after we left Korea, we went to Tibet. That was in '85, and we still looked a little kind of Buddhist and funny and thing like that. So in the restaurant in, in Lhasa. They recognized that we were Buddhist. They said, oh, you're Buddhist, oh, great. You know, and Stephen could speak Tibetan. And they were very keen. And they said, but what kind of Buddhism? And we said, Korean Buddhism, Zen Buddhism. They said, ah, Zen Buddhism, we beat you. <laughs> so I turned to Stephen, they beat us. Yeah, 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 we beat you in the Samye debate. <laughs> Finished. And I said, turn to see this. Yeah, the Samye debate in the 12th century. <laughs> and it was like, it was yesterday. I mean, to me, it was, you know, and we were eating our noodles at the same time. So in a way, we have to be careful. Each tradition has its good things. But we must be very careful of this thinking that there is only one way. To me, there is not only one method. That's why we talk of the breath, we talk of the question, we'll also talk of listening. Because again, each will be useful for some people and better for others. It's the same with the different tradition. They are culturally, they are also experientially bound. I think it's very important. I remember I was some years ago in a Zen place in France and uh, I was helping a friend translating who was visiting that Zen place and suddenly one of the teachers in the Zen place during the Zen session said, we have the only kinin, the only walking, our walking, this is the only true walking. I thought, ah, why not? But I was not convinced. I mean, you know, I've seen so many different types of walking. You know, you have some very slow walking. I've been in Taiwan. You have some very fast walking. Then you have the Korean walking. It's just a different way of walking. 
I think we have to be very careful and to see what is it which is really of the practice and what is it which is kind of more cultural. I mean, my best experience of that is with socks. In Korea, you must wear socks all the time. Even if it's 30 degrees, 35 degrees, it's so hot, you must wear socks. <laughs> Otherwise, this is very bad. This is the Buddha would have wore socks. <laughs> so, then I go to Japan, Zen place, and in Japan, you must not wear socks. No socks. Even if it's kind of icy and your feet sticks because it's icy, you must not wear socks. Okay. Then I go to Taiwan. And they seem to be to have gone beyond socklessness. Because at times they have socks, other times they don't, so I think this is okay. I can, you know, not wear socks. So I go into the meditation hall without socks, <gasps> and I'm told off. This is terrible. But I said, well, I, you can only not wear socks after four o'clock when you had your bath for two hours. After that, you must wear socks. So they were not beyond socklessness either. But this was just cultural. It's what kind of in the culture you had to do. It had nothing to do with the Dharma, nothing to do with meditation. So I think also we have to see that there is some of this thing is geographical and also historically contingent. And I remember when we were in uh, Korea, one day the Western monks were very excited because they got a, a, a latest book on Zen and that latest book on Zen was saying that most of the koans are not true, are not historically true. And so they rushed to Master Cousin and they said, Master, Master, the koans, they're not true. And he just sat there and he said, well, they're not, they might not be historically true, but they work. And this is, in a way, what was interesting, that these stories, are they true or not? We don't know. But actually, they're more like, kind of like a story which we can use. It's kind of like a teaching device. So again, we have to be careful that, in a way, we are inspired. I think, in a way, what is it in the teaching that can inspire us? What is it in the teaching that we can practice? How can we be with it? And to me, this, uh, this vow about the Dharma gates is it in a way to be grounded in one practice, to be grounded in one tradition, I think, can be useful. But at the same time, we can be open to others. We can be open to other practices. And at the same time, again, we don't need to learn everything at once. You know, the breath, and the Tibetan, and the Zen, and this and that. Of course we can't learn everything at once. And of course we can't practice everything at once. But I think what it is saying is in a way a commitment, an intention to explore, to try, to deepen. And also I would say with Dharma gates, not to limit them to Buddhist Dharma gates. Of course if we're really kind of familiar with Buddhism and we like the Buddhist tradition, maybe that's what we will more explore. But I think in a way to see also that our uh, body-mind is complex as many different aspects. That sometimes some aspect, but actually to develop, to work, might need another Dharma gate in another place. I remember once when I was living in England in the winter, and I was starting to feel a little, uh, it was dark, and it was, uh, and I thought, I need to do something. And I thought, if I just go and meditate, this did not seem to be the right thing to do. And I thought, creativity, I need to do something creative. And so I went to do a wood carving course for eight weeks. And it's really what I needed at that moment just to do the wood carving with my whole body, 
to create something. And so I think it's very important for us that yes, the meditation is good, but this is not just the meditation. There is also many different things. We can bring awareness to different things and we also have to cultivate different aspects of ourselves. So in a way to look in terms of Dharma gates, what is it that makes us grow? What is it that makes us reflect, that makes us practice the path? And the last one is the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. So again, we have to be careful. It's not saying that it is the highest. It's not saying that it's the only one. But it's saying, actually, it's very valuable, the Buddha's way. It's very rich. And it's saying, I can do it. I can walk it. I can progress on it. It is not unattainable. It's not so far away from me that I can never get there. The Buddha was a human being just like ourselves. And I find it very interesting to look at the way he talks about his practice, how actually it was very much based on him noticing his thought, noticing his positive thought, noticing his negative thought. So he was just a human being like ourselves. And the great masters, the same. They were human beings just like ourselves. So we too are human beings. We too can attain the Buddha way. And so in a way to see that it works, that it's beneficial, that it's therapeutic for ourselves, for others. And so in a way to see that what we're doing here is in a way is trying to realize the Buddha's way. And in a way it is difficult at times. And I know uh, some retreat might be more intense, but even to sit like we do and to walk, it might not be easy every moment. And maybe, you know, the last sitting in the morning might be a little painful towards the end or the last sitting in the afternoon. And in a way, when we're sitting there, even when it is difficult, we're actually working on that vow. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. It might be difficult. It might require patience. It might require forbearance. But in a way, I vow to do that. So I think it's very important to see that in a way, I personally, I feel that when we sit, we're actually kind of taking these vows about saving all beings, about working with compulsion, about practicing the various Dharma gates, about really aspiring to become a Buddha, to really, in a way, develop the most wisdom the most compassion we can. And so I would see the four vows as in a way three powers. The power of intention, so that it gives direction to our life to say yes, compassion is important. Yes, working with compulsion is important. Yes, practicing the Dharma gates is important. Yes, the Buddha's way, having faith in oneself is important but also the power of recognition, the fact that I too can do this. I too can be compassionate. I too can work with my habits. I too can cultivate the Dharma gate. But also the power of meaning, of what is it that we value. And I think this is, in a way, when we sit in meditation, I know often there is this kind of, wanting to have a special state, a special something. But to me, an important aspect of it is that when you sit in meditation, when you walk, when you are here cultivating this awareness, this questioning, you're actually saying, I value this. This is important in my life. And in a way, you kind of ground in your life in that. You kind of put in these values as having meaning in your life, as really kind of giving power to your life. And I'd like to finish just with a story about a Korean nun. And again, I met her when I was doing this research. And what was interesting about her 
is that she was a teacher in the university and she taught the Avatamsaka Sutta, which is a Buddhist Sutta, which is important, influential in the Zen tradition. And I asked her, how, you know, how did you come to do what you did? She said, oh, I went to the monastery to practice and to awaken, like generally. And so first, you know, I, I uh, had to study the Sutta. <coughs> and as I was studying the Sutta, I came again these passages in the Avatamsaka Sutta, which says, all sentient beings are Buddhas, and all Buddhas are sentient beings. And so she thought, oh, I am a Buddha too. And then she decided to study the Avatamsaka Sutta more, and then just to teach it. And I said, but what is your practice? She said, oh, my practice in the morning, I do a little meditation, and then my practice is actually that day. Because I am a Buddha, because I am a sentient being, is to be like a Buddha. And so in the day, my intention is to practice and to have the same compassion and the same wisdom as a Buddha. This is my practice, to be like the Buddha. And then at the end of the day, because she's also a sentient being, and she might make mistakes, and she see how Buddha-like, how sentient being-like. And the next day, again, she tries to be a Buddha. So, that's what I wanted to say. Are there any questions or comments? What I was saying is that generally, as a human being, there is only so many things we can do, and there is only so many things we can think. And so, I mean, some people, again, there is a kind of a spectrum. From doing many, many things to doing just one thing. And personally, I would say the middle way is, is good. That if one is familiar with one tradition, and if that tradition seems to, to fit, then you know, one is familiar with that tradition. But that doesn't mean that one is dogmatic. But I think, in a way, also, because you see, you, it, it depends how we view tradition. You could just view tradition as the tradition of the Buddha. Personally, that's the way I would look. You know, I am, yes, I am a Buddhist, and I am from the tradition of the Buddha, and I have been trained in the Korean tradition, and I'm also very interested in the Vipassana tradition. So, but I, I could not just be a Korean Buddhist. That, I mean, we were, I was asked to take care of a Korean temple, and I felt I could not do it because I felt I could not just be a Korean Buddhist. But I'm very inspired, but I'm very grounded in that, and also interested in the Vipassana tradition. I mean, with Stephen, he was training the Tibetan tradition, then the Korean tradition, and he's very interested also in the Vipassana tradition. And so I think we kind of consider ourselves more like the Buddhist tradition. For example, I know extremely little about the Christian tradition. So that I can, I don't know anything about it. And then you have people who are Christian and Buddhist at the same time. This, personally, I could not do because I don't know that other tradition. So I think, again, it's how do you see the tradition? Because sometimes people think just actually one small Japanese tradition or just one small Korean tradition. Because there are different Korean traditions, different Japanese tradition, different Tibetan tradition, different Buddhist tradition. So again, it's kind of, uh, what is the smallest bit, what is the biggest bit? That's, that's the first thing to see. 
And in terms of practice, I would say in general, over time, it seems to me that we generally find one or two practice that we just do naturally. For myself, I would say generally, I do the question and a bit of awareness. And this just works for me. And some people might do more naturally meta meditation, awareness practice, or whatever. I think it's also something you can combine. And I would say they are complementary. And then it's true that some things are really quite different. And then sometimes to put two very different things together might not work. So then, then one might have to make a choice. So I think it's more to see for ourselves. Because sometimes, in one place you like the people. In another place, you like the practice. <laughs> Often that's what people come to me and say, oh, these people, they're very friendly. Somebody was telling me, but they, they believe too much. For example, some, some people don't like so much things which are too religious. Then they might like the people, but they don't like too much religion. So they like those people, but they prefer to do that practice. And I think, in a way, nowadays that's a little what happens. That we can pick and choose a little, but I would say in a way to pick and choose in a way which the bottom line is, does it help me to cultivate the path? Does it help me to develop wisdom and compassion? This, I think, is the bottom line. Does it help me to be stable and open? To me, this is what is important. Not so much the tradition, not so much the practice, not so much the technique. But when I do this, do, does it make a difference? Does it help me to be more wise and compassionate, to be more stable and open? That would be, to me, what is more important than which tradition or which practice. Why not? Uh, this is, <laughs> again, you see. Well, I don't, what, do you, what do you think? Uh, no, no. You see, possibly in certain tradition, it can be interpreted that way. But the way I was taught, it was more that it was moon, it was gates, and it seems to refer to to the teaching, to practices. But of course, again, it's kind of how do you extend these things? And, and that's what I was kind of basically saying, that in a way, what is it that helps us to grow? What is it that helps us to practice? And then anything at one level can do that. So I think it's again, how extensive do you look at it? But personally, that's the interpretation I was, uh, I was given. But again, I could, see, I could see that in a Soto context, it would very much be interpreted that way, because that's the way, in a way, the practice would lead to, in, to that interpretation. And maybe in the context where I found myself, it was more interpreted as more like the teaching, the practice, in terms of the meditation and the Buddha's teaching. Okay, then again, this is traditions. In the Zen tradition, you must have the eyes half open. Otherwise, in the Theravada tradition, you must have them closed. Otherwise, and in the Dzogchen tradition, you must have them wide open. And you see, I think, you know, it's kind of like, to me, what I find interesting about these things is that I imagine one day somebody decided this is the way to do it, because they liked it. So in the Zen tradition, it's because Bodhidharma used to fall asleep, so he cut his eyelid, and then he had to have, you know, his eyes were open, no matter what. 
<laughs> and seemingly he did not fall asleep so much. But again, this possibly is a little legendary. So personally, what I would suggest, again, it's different from different people. Some people, if they close their eyes, actually feel more disembodied. But you see, to you, it has other effect. And to me, that's why I am not dogmatic about this at all. And so I think it's what works. Again, what is it that helps you to be quiet and clear when you sit? So if it helps you to close the eyes, close the eyes. If it helps you to have the eyes half open, do that. To have them wide open, do that. But in general, what I would recommend is that if you feel agitated, it might be better to close the eyes. If you feel asleep, it might be better to have the eyes open. So I think, again, it can be also a little conditional. So I think it's very much for people to try out. In terms of the Zen tradition, is to kind of keep, uh, you have the eyes half open, so you keep being present to what is around you, and also you have light, and so you're less likely to fall asleep. But this is within the consideration that they generally sit 10 to 12 hours a day. And, they, and also it was a sitting down culture, uh, kind of they used to sleep, sit on the floor, which means that when they sit, very often they go. So, I mean, again, it's kind of this consideration for them. But I think it's really, if you feel more comfortable closing the eyes, do that, no problem. Good, and I think we have to stop here and do some walking meditation before the last sitting at 8.30. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.